Welcome to the Bible Study Tutor. My name is Jessica Hutton and I am your Bible Study Tutor for today. Today is day three of our study of the Gospel of John and we will focus on John 1, 19 through 34. I recommend that you watch introductory videos about the Gospel of John and complete days one and two of the inductive Bible study that are published in the Gospel of John playlist. Those videos will help you exegete John's prologue and offer insight into the context for today's reading. I summarized chapter one in both of those videos, so I will not do that here. Instead, we're going to dive into our study for the day. So let's begin by reading the text. I'm reading from the English Standard Version of John 1, 19 through 34. So if you don't own an ESV Bible, you can follow along with me on BibleGateway.com or simply read the screen. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him. Before this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Building upon the previous passage, John 1, 19-34 further explores the significance of John the Baptist's role as a witness sent by God to testify about Jesus. The evangelist reiterates the Baptist's purpose was to bear witness about the true light, Jesus Christ, and lead others to believe in him through his testimony. It is emphasized that while John the Baptist was a prominent figure, he was not the light itself, but rather a faithful messenger appointed by God to testify about the coming of the true light. Today's reading delves deeper into John the Baptist's ministry and its profound impact. Notably, we witness the moment when the Father and Holy Spirit affirm Jesus' divine identity as the Son of God. Moreover, we gain a crucial insight into Jesus as the Lamb of God designated to take away the sin of the world. This imagery illustrates Jesus as the unblemished and perfect sacrifice chosen by God, offering redemption and reconciliation for humanity's transgression once and for all. As we study John 1, 19-34, it becomes evident that John the Baptist's testimony serves as a powerful testament to Jesus' true nature and divine purpose, revealing him as the long-awaited Savior and the ultimate sacrifice for the salvation of humanity. 
The prologue, John 1, 1 through 18, provides profound insights into Jesus' identity and establishes John the Baptist's role as a key witness testifying about him. Today's reading, John 1, 19 through 34, unveils that remarkable impact of John's testimony. Now, in the broader context of the Gospel of John, these theological themes contribute to its overarching narrative. By focusing on the significance of John the Baptist's testimony and its influence, the Gospel challenges readers to delve deeper into why this witness about Jesus held such immense power. What was it about John's testimony that resonated so profoundly with the audience? Conversely, what aspects of his witness were perceived as offensive? The text compellingly raises these questions, prompting us to ponder and explore the dramatic tension that unfolds as the fullness of Jesus' identity is gradually revealed. This connection to the prologue and the gospel as a whole enhances our understanding of John's pivotal role in paving the way for Jesus' ministry. It aligns with the gospel's overarching message of Jesus as the incarnate word, the light, and the true Son of God. The seamless narrative progression from the prologue to John's testimony showcases the powerful unfolding of God's plan, wherein John serves as a crucial link in the chain of events leading to the revelation of Jesus' divine nature. Now, in the broader scope of the Bible, the Gospel of John aligns with the theme of redemption, highlighting Jesus' sacrificial role as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It echoes the prophetic messages and foreshadowings that are found in the Old Testament, connecting the long-awaited promises of God to their fulfillment in the person of Christ Jesus. Thus, John 1, 19-34 serves as a powerful and seamless continuation of the biblical narrative, which deepens our understanding of God's redemptive plan for humanity through the testimony of John the Baptist and revelation of Jesus as our Savior. Now, I want to help you enhance your contextual understanding, and to do that, we're going to use the Wrestle framework. Wrestle is an acronym for Writer, Religion, Events, Society, Theology, Language, and Exegesis. I developed this framework to help us lay a solid foundation for sound exegesis and hermeneutics by helping us uncover the historical, cultural, literary, and the theological context of a book, a passage that we're studying. To do that, we must understand W, the writer's perspective and motivation, R, the religious and political climate, E, the significance of events, S, social factors that inform the context, T, what theological themes are implied or described in the reading, L, the significance of the author's language choice and how it's translated to enhance our understanding, and E, how to leverage authorial intent to write accurate exegetical statements about the passage and in turn interpret it accurately. Now let's use the Wrestle Framework to draw out the historical, cultural, literary, and theological context of John 1, 19-34. W, Writer's Perspective and Motivation. John specified the purpose of his gospel account in John 20, 31. The text reads, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John's purpose was twofold. The first was evangelistic as he exhorts people to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. The second was edification as he urges believers to continue believing in Christ and persevere in the faith. Craig Keener says this, 
Throughout the gospel, many people become initial believers, but their initial faith proves insufficient without perseverance. John's goal is not simply initial faith, but persevering faith, discipleship. John's purpose is to address believers at a lesser stage of discipleship and to invite them to persevere as true disciples. John is calling his audience to a full confession of resurrection faith. Jesus is God in the flesh, and therefore his claims cannot be compromised for synagogue or for Caesar. John will settle for no less faith secure than this. That purpose is evident throughout the gospel as John strategically highlights significant aspects of Jesus' person and ministry, which implicates us to believe. Bruce Milner says it this way, in the light of his presentation of Jesus through the gospel, the signs of his life and ministry, his teaching and claims, his death and resurrection, where do we stand? John invites us to respond by believing, that is by committing ourselves personally to Jesus Christ as our Lord and God, trusting his death as that of God's sacrificial lamb to atone for our sins and following him in the way of discipleship as our way, truth, and life. The result, John assures us in closing, will be life in his name, the eternal life of God's kingdom, which in the end is Jesus Christ himself. And that purpose, ladies and gentlemen, will frame our exegetical and hermeneutical study of this book. Religious and Political Climate The Pharisees sent priests and Levites to inquire about John's identity and what right he had to baptize. The Jews practiced baptism for ritual cleansing, and even then, they baptized themselves. Baptism was only for proselytes, that is, Gentiles, who converted to Judaism, did not believe they needed to be baptized because they were God's chosen people. D.A. Carson explains it this way. Some Jewish groups practiced proselyte baptism, that is, proselytes were baptized in the process of converting to Judaism. In the monastic community at Qumran, Members invoked passages such as Ezekiel 36.25 to justify their daily baptism, a sign that they were the righteous community at, of the end time. But in both instances, baptism was self-administered. Candidates baptized themselves. One of the things that characterized the baptism of John the Baptist is that he himself administered it. It may even be that the authority implicit in such an innovative step triggered the assumption in the minds of at least some Pharisees that John's baptism was an end-time rite administered by an end-time figure with great authority. Their question should not be interpreted to mean that they have all unambiguously identified John's baptism as an eschatological rite. There is no good evidence to support such a view. Rather, they want to discover by what authority John is baptizing Jewish people as part of their preparation for the kingdom he is announcing. Looking around for an adequate authority to sanction such an extraordinary practice, they wonder if he is an eschatological figure. And if he is not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet, then what could possibly justify his baptism? In other words, John's baptism activity was quite scandalous, hence the priests and Levites' interrogation of him. Now about events. The passage vividly portrays John the Baptist's ministry, where he baptizes people and testifies about Jesus. 
In the midst of baptizing, the priests and Levites arrive to question him. John firmly denies that he's Elijah, the prophet, or the Christ. Instead, he identifies himself as a voice crying out in the wilderness, urging people to prepare for the Lord's arrival. While John continues his baptism activities and his preaching, Jesus approaches and John proclaims, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The narrative further unfolds with the significant event of Jesus' baptism by John. During this momentous occasion, the Father and Holy Spirit bear witness, affirming Jesus' identity. This baptism serves three essential purposes. One, revealing the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit, that's Jesus. Two, demonstrating the presence of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as distinct persons, yet one God, what we call the Trinity. And three, confirming Jesus' identity as the Chosen One, the Son of God. This passage beautifully captures the interplay of John's ministry, Jesus' arrival, and the divine affirmation of Christ's identity through baptism. S. Social Factors John's baptism and his proclamation of the impending Messiah posed a direct challenge to the established religious order, causing consternation among certain religious authorities. In essence, John 1, 19-34 unveils the social and religious norms surrounding baptism within the Jewish culture. John the Baptist's departure from conventional practices and his assumption of personal authority in administering baptism served as a profound disruption to prevailing norms. This encounter between John and the Pharisees illuminates the intricate interplay of social beliefs, practices, and expectations all of which exerted a profound influence on the unfolding narrative and the perception of John's divine mission and message. Now, theological themes. This passage presents profound theological insights unveiling Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. By referring to Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John bears witness to Jesus' divine nature as the Son of God. The passage illuminates crucial aspects of God's character. One, Jesus is God incarnate, taking on human flesh. Two, he is integral part of the Trinity, distinct yet one with the Father and Holy Spirit. Three, God's sovereignty and omniscience are evident. Four, God reveals Christ to humanity. Five, Jesus serves as the perfect and ultimate sacrifice, atoning for the sins of humanity. The theological themes within this passage encompass one, the doctrine of the incarnation, emphasizing Jesus' embodiment of divinity in human form. Two, the significance of witness and testimony, highlighting its impact on revealing truth. Three, the, identify, the identity of Jesus and his profound role as the Lamb of God. Four, the introduction of baptism, both through water and Holy Spirit, as a symbolic act of spiritual cleansing and renewal. Regarding L, language and translation, the Gospel of John was originally written in Koine Greek, which was a common language in that time. Today, I'm going to focus on a specific phrase, Lamb of God. And then finally, E, exegesis and interpretation. In delving into John 1, 19-34, a thorough understanding of the historical, cultural, literary, and theological context we've explored is vital so that we can write accurate exegetical statements and interpretations. 
By considering these essential aspects, we can extract deeper meaning and insights from the passage. For instance, let's examine the statement made by John the Baptist when he refers to Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The historical cultural context of Jewish sacrificial practices and significance of lambs as offerings provides rich symbolism to this statement. In the Jewish tradition, lambs were often offered as sacrifices to atone for sin and their blood served as a means of cleansing and forgiveness. Now, by understanding this context, we can interpret John's proclamation as a profound declaration of Jesus' sacrificial role in redemption. He is the ultimate and perfect sacrificial lamb whose death would bring forgiveness and salvation to the world. This interpretation aligns with the theological theme we have explored and will continue to explore in the Gospel of John. And it also highlights Jesus' divine nature and his role as the chosen one, the Son of God. Furthermore, the literary context plays a crucial role in interpreting the passage. John's gospel is known for its rich symbolism and theological depth, and the use of the title Lamb of God is a prime example. John skillfully employs this imagery to convey the profound truth of Jesus' sacrificial mission, adding layers of meaning to the narrative. So by thoroughly considering the historical, cultural, literary, and theological context of John 1, 19 through 34, we can craft accurate exegetical statements and interpretations. Doing so enables us to grasp the deeper significance of the John the Baptist proclamation, which then sheds light on the profound theological themes present in the passage and as we'll see throughout the Gospel of John. The first step of the inductive Bible study method is observation. This step involves reading and analyzing the text, paying attention to its details, and noting any significant words, phrases, concepts, grammatical structure, or literary devices. In addition, observing the text also involves identifying main characters, events, themes, and any other significant contextual factors that may help you uncover the meaning of the text. Skillful observation is pivotal because it determines whether you accurately understand the text and therefore are able to interpret it appropriately. During the observation phase, we will read the passage carefully and note key observations such as what the text says about people, places, events, and of course, key words. And this is a testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites to Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they have been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he 
of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Immerse yourself in John 1, 19 through 34 for 10 minutes. First, jot down your observations and any questions that arise. Next, write a summary of your observations. Then search for insights about those observations. Look within the passage first, then review cross-references and use external resources. Your goal is to get high-level insights about your observations and questions because you're not interpreting anything yet. Here's a hint. For key people, notice significant names and descriptions mentioned by the author. For key places, notice how towns and their inhabitants are described. Key events include activities that shed light on the historical cultural context such as legal or religious events, dialogues, or social interactions that are highlighted by the author. Lastly, highlight words that are hard to understand, repeated, or have unique usage. For example, consider the significance of the words, Lamb of God. Reflect on how that title reveals the identity of Jesus. If you're watching the Bible Study Tutor on YouTube, you will see a 10 minute timer on the screen. And you will also see a list of observations to look for. Podcast listeners are encouraged to pause the episode and set your timer for 10 minutes so you can do the activity when you're no longer on the move. Your 10 minutes starts now.
Here's some observations I made. Key people. The evangelist portrays John's baptizing activities, subtly revealing the reason behind his title, the Baptist or the baptizer. Although baptizing held a significant place in his ministry, the primary focus lay in bearing witness about the light, that is, Jesus Christ. So it's critical not to overemphasize John Baptist. So it's critical not to overemphasize John's baptism ministry, but to recognize the profound impact of his testimony. The text also identifies the priests and Levites sent by the Pharisees, who were clearly influential, and those priests and Levites served as inquirers who interrogated John. Their presence underscores the importance and impact of John's message and its relevance to the religious authorities of the time. Meanwhile, Jesus is also introduced as the Lamb of God and Son of God, thereby elevating his significance of John's witness. Meanwhile, John also identified Jesus as the Lamb of God and Son of God, which provides us with more insight into the revelatory unfolding about Jesus' identity. As the narrative unfolds, John continues to testify about Jesus, and his witness is unequivocally affirmed by the Father and the Holy Spirit. These key individuals, John, the priests and Levites, and Jesus, all contribute to the rich context of our Bible study, offering unique perspectives on the unfolding events and theological themes that are present in John 1, 19-34. By acknowledging their role and interaction, we can enhance our understanding of the profound impact of John's witness and the unveiling of Jesus' divine identity. Now regarding key places. The writer deliberately mentions Bethany across the Jordan, signifying its importance in the narrative. As we delve further into our study of the Gospel of John, we will uncover the significance behind this specific location and its role in unfolding events. So by paying close attention to the writer's deliberate choice to name this place and other places as we'll see in other studies, we can gain valuable insights into the broader context of the Gospel and the meaningful connections between key places and the events that take place. And speaking of events, while John's baptizing activities hold significance, it is essential not to focus too much on them, but rather contemplate the significance of the baptism itself. So within this context, John's baptizing caught the attention of influential religious leaders which set the stage for the events that would later unfold. Notably, through the act of baptism, Jesus' divine identity was unveiled to John. Notably, through the act of baptism, Jesus' divine identity was unveiled to John precisely as God had promised. The passage vividly recounts the momentous occasion when Jesus was baptized and the Spirit descended like a dino like a dove remaining on him. This divine revelation prompted John to bear witness proclaiming Jesus as the Son of God. Key words. Several key words and phrases stood out to me. Priests, Levites, Pharisees, Christ, Elijah, Prophet, Baptized, Lamb of God, and Son of God. Today I want to focus on Lamb of God because it's the first direct reference that John made about Jesus' identity and mission. Now, the Greek word used for lamb in this passage is ho theos. 
consecrated to God. In these passages, Christ is likened to a sacrificial lamb on account of his death, innocently and patiently endured to, ex to expiate sin. I will share more about the significance of this during the interpretation phase of our Bible study. The second step of inductive Bible study method is interpretation. The primary objective of this phase is to delve into the historical, cultural, and literary context of the passage. By carefully examining background information such as the author, audience, historical context, and literary genre of the book, we will gain invaluable insights that reveal the meaning of the text. Moreover, comparing the passage with other relevant scriptures can enhance our understanding of the passage, thereby increasing the likelihood of accurate interpretation. During this phase, we seek to uncover the deeper meaning and theological implications of John 1, 19-34. So we will use cross-references and extra-biblical resources to gain more insight about our observations, find answers to questions that we have, and learn what biblical scholars say about the passage. Ask yourself the following questions. What did the author intend to communicate in this passage? How will the audience receive and interpret the message? What theological themes are addressed in this reading? And what does this passage reveal about the nature of God? Now spend the next 10 minutes reflecting on the significance of your observations, write a summary of your interpretation, then use internal resources, that is the scripture, cross-references, and external resources to conduct in-depth research about your observations. Your goal is to gain insights about your observations and questions so that you can correctly interpret the text. However, it's best if you wrote your interpretation of the text first so that you can then compare it to reliable, scholarly, biblical, and theologically sound resources. If you're watching the Bible Study Tutor on YouTube, you will see a 10-minute timer on your screen and a list of Bible study research tools that you can use to help you with your interpretation process. Podcast listeners are encouraged to pause the episode when they are able to slow down and set your own timer for 10 minutes. So your 10 minute interpretation process begins.
my interpretation of the text. Regarding authorial intent, the evangelist unveils the unfolding divine revelation that the Baptist received concerning Jesus. As God reveals Jesus' identity to John, his mission becomes clear to point people towards the Savior. Sent by God as a witness, John fulfilled this calling through his preaching and baptism ministry. Yet his, wisdom, yet his witness gained immense power as he emphatically emphasized Jesus' identity as the Lamb of God and Son of God, thereby revealing the Savior's divine nature and salvific mission. Ultimately, John's primary aim is to emphasize the testimony of John the Baptist regarding Jesus Christ by accomplishing these four key things. First, John introduced the Baptist as a significant figure in preparation for Jesus' ministry by shining a spotlight on John's baptizing activities and his divine role as a witness sent by God, the author established John's credibility and authority. Secondly, the gospel zero in, zeroes in on the intricate details of John's testimony about Jesus. The focal point of this passage is to underscore John the Baptist's pivotal testimony about Christ. The author aimed to demonstrate that John recognizes Jesus as the one who surpasses him, the long-awaited Messiah. The Baptist's testimony vividly reveals Jesus' divine identity as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and as the beloved Son of God. Third, the gospel brilliantly points readers toward Jesus as the central figure of salvation. John the Baptist's testimony acts is a mighty witness guiding people to embrace Jesus and follow him as true Savior. Fourth, through the witness of John the Baptist, the evangelist established Jesus' unrivaled authority and divine role in God's redemptive plan. The narrative powerfully includes the Father and Holy Spirit affirming Jesus' deity along with John's resolute declaration that Jesus is the Lamb of God and the Son of God. This highlights Jesus' unparalleled nature and his critical role in the salvation of mankind. By continuously directing attention to Jesus' divine identity and authority, the Gospel of John consistently reinforces the core theme of belief in Jesus as the path, the only way, to forgiveness and eternal life. Understanding the audience's possible interpretations requires us to take an in-depth look at the historical, cultural, literary, and theological context that undergird the phrase, Lamb of God. By enhancing our contextual understanding of the significance behind Lamb of God, we can better discern the most probable interpretation that John's first century Jewish and Gentile audience may have held. Now, John the Baptist's powerful use of the phrase Lamb of God to describe Jesus left a profound impact on his disciples, compelling them to follow Jesus. However, scholars debate the exact meaning of this phrase. They discuss whether the author projected his revelation of Jesus' sacrificial death and salvific work into his writing, merely recorded the Baptist revelation for which he might not have had full comprehension, or aimed to draw parallels between John's declaration that Jesus was the Lamb of God and other scriptural instances, particularly in the Old Testament. According to D.A. Carson, the various interpretations of the phrase Lamb of God are as follows. Jesus as the gentle lamb of Jeremiah 11:19, 19, 
though Jeremiah does not mention taking away the sin of the world, Jesus as the lamb of daily sacrifice, even though there is no evidence that the daily sacrifice was referred to as God's lamb or the lamb of God, Jesus as a scapegoat from Leviticus 16, which symbolically bears the sins of people, although in that example is a goat rather than a lamb, Jesus as the lamb of Genesis 22, the substitute for Isaac, even though the context of Genesis does not mention bearing sin, Jesus as a guilt offering from Leviticus 14 and number six, a sacrifice that deals with sin despite the common use of wolves and goats for sacrifices, not lambs. Jesus as a servant of the Lord from Isaiah 53, as an Aramaic word, talia, spoken by the Baptist can mean either servant or lamb, although it seems unlikely that the expression the Lamb of God was directly derived from this. Jesus as the apocalyptic triumphant lamb of Revelation 7, 17 and 17, 14. Despite the scarcity of this expression in Jewish texts and the use of arnion instead of amnos for lamb, Jesus as the Passover lamb, the theme alluded to in the fourth gospel, even though there was no evidence that the Passover lamb was considered a sin offering. Jesus as the lamb led to the slaughter from Isaiah 53, 7, whose death effectively deals with transgression, though it must be recognized that the lamb in the Isaiah passage is only a simile. Lamb of God is simply a parallel to the Son of God and means no more than that. So those are the interpretations that D.A. Carson highlights are common among scholars. Newman and Nita, the authors of a handbook on the Gospel of John, offer valuable insights to translators regarding the proper translation of the Gospel. They, like other scholars, recognize the challenges in translating the phrase Lamb of God. However, they shed light on two key perspectives through which the phrase can be comprehended one from the viewpoint of John the Baptist and the other from that of the Gospels author, John the Evangelist, the Apostle John, or however you want to call him. The authors explain that if the phrase is understood from John the Baptist's perspective, it likely refers to the victorious lamb of Jewish apocalyptic tradition. In this context, the Lamb of God would be a figure expected to come and defeat evil powers on earth as described in texts like Revelation 17, 14. John the Baptist's preaching aligns with this view. And so in this interpretation, the verb takes away would mean to do away with or to overcome as seen in the Gospel of John and in 1 John 3, 5. On the other hand, if the phrase is seen from the perspective of Johannine theology, that is the theology of the Gospel of John, it could be related to the Passover lamb. So according to John's gospel, Jesus was crucified at the time of the Passover and the soldiers did not break his legs, fulfilling the symbolism of Exodus 12:46 regarding the Passover lamb. Although the Passover lamb was not originally seen as a sacrifice, some people in the New Testament times might have viewed it as a kind of sacrifice considering the priest's involvement in killing the lambs. So deciding between these two interpretations is challenging but many commentators lean toward the second view, which emphasizes the perspective of Johannine theology that is discovered in the Gospel of John. D.A. Carson suggests that if we approach the term Lamb of God from the perspective of John the Evangelist who wrote the Gospel after the resurrection of Jesus, he might have grasped a more profound understanding of the Messiah's sacrificial death. 
While he doesn't explicitly change the meaning from takes away to bears away and atoning death, he likely associated the phrase with Jesus' sacrificial act on the cross. John could have drawn inspiration from various Old Testament passages, such as Isaiah 53, where the lamb imagery is used in connection with suffering servant. Additionally, references to the Passover lamb and other Old Testament imagery could have contributed to his understanding of Jesus as the Lamb of God. Craig Keener suggests that the phrase Lamb of God in John's Gospel may have multiple layers of meaning, including sacrificial atonement, Jesus dying on behalf of others, and the Passover Lamb's symbolism. He argues that the primary background of the phrase Lamb of God in John 129 is likely that of the sacrificial Passover Lamb. However, other sources, such as the suffering servant imagery, might also contribute to its multifaceted meaning in the Gospel of John. Nevertheless, Keener adds, these ideas can coexist comfortably and are not mutually exclusive. Bottom line is this, regardless of the specific contextual details, the passage emphasizes the Lamb of God's sacrifice is not limited to the Jewish race, but extends to all humanity. Jesus, as the Lamb of God, provides a provision for the forgiveness of sins of all people, as indicated in the Gospel's prologue, John 1, 11 through 12. Indeed, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So if the bottom line is that, why did I take you through all the historical cultural context of understanding the phrase, the Lamb of God? It's because I want you to get into the habit of understanding the context of scripture so that you can go back in time if you will and grasp the meaning the significance that the original audience would have gleaned from the message if we project our current understanding or what we believe to be our understanding onto the scripture then we are not reading the text the way it's meant to be read that's called eisegesis Exegesis is drawing out from the text, and that is the original meaning, the purpose, the intent of the scripture. Eisegesis is projecting our assumptions, our values, our beliefs, our own interpretations into the text and drawing out, making it mean something that it never meant. And so even though it is a tedious process reviewing the history reviewing the social and religious factors reviewing the greek especially if you don't know the greek and you're, you're trying to discern dictionary usage biblical usage all the things even though that's tedious and can be annoying and tiresome once you get the context of it you can better understand how the author intended to communicate the message how their original audience would have interpreted the message. And with that, you can rightly discern its true meaning. All of the context allows us to understand what the Lamb of God is. We need to get beyond repeating what the pastor taught us, repeating what our Sunday school teacher taught us, repeating what the Bible study people on YouTube teach us, but we need to get in the habit of learning it for ourselves. So we need to go to the sources, various resources that are available, understand the context for ourselves so that we can rightly discern when we hear the truth. And having all that background, as hard as it may feel to review it and find it and understand it, 
all that background allows us to say confidently that Jesus is the Lamb of God who provides the forgiveness of sin for all people. He takes away the sin of the world. So now we can say amen to that because not only do we have the experience of that, not only do we hear somebody teach that, but we know the background and we understand the symbolism and the imagery and all the things that the people at first would have understood, which is why the language was used in the first place. So now with that, we're going to get into the application phase of our inductive Bible study of John 1, 19 through 34. And then we're going to wrap it up. The final step of the inductive Bible study method is application, which involves the process of drawing parallels from the passage in order to derive principles and precepts that can be applied to our lives. The application phase requires careful consideration of the interpretive insights gleaned from the passage and its alignment with the overarching message of the Bible. Application may involve making pragmatic changes, seeking personal growth, or otherwise learning how to align our lifestyles with the vision, values, and principles conveyed in the text. During the application phase, it is essential to take into account the broader biblical context to ensure that our application remains consistent with the overall message and teachings of the Bible. By anchoring our application in this larger framework, we can maintain coherence and alignment with the timeless wisdom and guidance provided by the scripture. Now we will explore how John 1, 19 through 34 can translate into our modern context. To do that, we're going to take the next 10 minutes to reflect on the parallel precepts and principles that we've discovered in today's reading. That's what I call the three P's of life application. You're going to respond to the questions and prompts that you see on the screen with the timer and prayerfully these will help you with life application. Your 10 minutes starts now.
Here are some elements for a practical life application that I got from the text. In the prologue, we discovered that the Word became flesh, offering the incredible opportunity for all who believe in Him to become the children of God. John 1.29 further emphasizes this point and foreshadows Jesus' atoning sacrifice. It becomes evident that Jesus' invitation to believe extends beyond the boundaries of the Jewish community. It encompasses the entire world. His message of salvation and forgiveness of sins is universal and lies at the core of the gospel. Understanding Jesus' identity as the Lamb of God is truly profound. Even more awe-inspiring is grasping the significance of his death as the ultimate atonement event, surpassing all other means by which humans in the Old Testament sought to atone for sin. The sacrifices and atoning rituals of the first covenant find their true effectiveness only in light of Christ's sacrifice. Regardless of our ethnicity, gender, age, background, social class, or history, if we believe in and receive Jesus Christ as the Messiah, the Son of God, and Savior of the world, we are promised eternal life as children of God. As our study of the gospel continues, we will realize that there is only one way to the Father, and that is through Jesus Christ. While it may not have been explicitly stated yet, one of the fundamental precepts we can discern from our study is that belief in Christ is essential for anyone desiring to become a child of God and experience eternal life. Throughout our examination of the text, no exact parallels were identified. However, the rich and meaningful truth that we have uncovered are more than sufficient to deepen our understanding of and strengthen our faith in Jesus Christ. So as we bring this episode to a close, let's turn our focus toward our upcoming study. In the next episode, we're going to dive into John 1, 35-51 and encounter more witnesses of Jesus. Additionally, the author, John, will unveil Jesus himself, granting us a captivating glimpse into the commencement of his ministry. So get ready for an exciting continuation of our journey through the Gospel of John. Also, thank you for joining me in our study of John 1, 19-34. Every moment that we dedicate to exploring the Gospel of John brings us closer to experiencing the transformative power of knowing Jesus on a profound intellectual, emotional, and spiritual level. It is my utmost desire to see you grow in biblical fluency and spiritual maturity. So I pray that you subscribe to the channel so that you can continue the study with me. Share this video with your friends, family, and anyone you know who wants to become more biblically fluent and mature in the faith. And that you stay tuned every day. Watch every video and actually do the study with me so that you can grow in your understanding of Christ. Until next time. Take care and God bless.